KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. This is Jeremy Frank again, and I'm really thrilled to be with our guest, Paul Akers. Paul is the founder and CEO of FastCap, a manufacturing company located right here in the United States, and is also the author of a whole series of books, starting with Two Second Lean and Lean Health, Lean Travel, Lean Life, and most recently, Banished Sloppiness. Let me just say, welcome, Paul. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. Likewise. I have been just digesting your books over the last couple of months, really just the last couple of weeks, and I'm just absolutely loving them. I want to just say thank you for your for your writing. I think it's really a treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I really, it's, it's very genuine. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've read a lot of books about lean, and I'm just kind of going to school on it. But what's so refreshing about your approach and your style is you make it fun and easy to digest. There's like the step is clear. Is that, is that something yeah. you did very intentionally? Very intentionally because I'm i I'm dyslexic. I have ADD, you know, I get distracted easily, but when there's the fun emotional component into anything you do, it's very easy to become more successful. So I'll give you a great example. I'm writing a song right now. I'm a songwriter and I've recorded music and done music videos and everything else. And the process that I applied to writing this song this time actually had a fun component to it. And as a result, I was much more successful. And I just absolutely observed that. I just actually observed that just today. I go, why is this song so much more enjoyable than all the other songs I've written? Why am I so much more successful? It's because the fun component was there. Hmm. How did, what's the name of the song? I'm just curious. What was, go ahead. Say it again. Does, does it have a name yet? What's the name of the song? Well, the name of the song is called Post to Be, P-O-S, and then the to be. And the reason why, and it's a story of my whole heritage as being Greek, because I've been documenting my mother's history. She's 95 years old. And my uncle, Uncle Hercules, who lived to 100, was Greek, and he always used to have a crooked finger, and he would go post to be because he couldn't speak English. So he went post to be. So the whole song is about how we were supposed to be. It's understood. A, it's very, yeah, it's very fun. Very fun. And how did now? Is this something you can relate to your approach to lean? Kind of that—that's the simple, focused approach of process. Yeah. Well, absolutely. In this particular instance, what I did differently about writing the song, so. As I progressed in songwriting, I always, whenever I wrote a, a, a particular verse or wrote a, the musical part to it, I would record it with an audio feature on my iPhone. But the problem was that was not always easy to edit on the fly. So this time what I did is I recorded everything with my video and then put it into iMovie and was able to to edit every frame as I went along and then tied it all together so I could listen to the entire song play through and say, oh, I don't like that. I do like that. I can change that. And so I never lost the context of what I was trying to do. And it was so much more enjoyable. I go, wow, this is incredible. I never thought to do it, record it with a video instead of the audio. It's an audio thing, but I recorded it with video and it worked much better. Got it. I love it. I mean, that you know, all the stories in your in your books just have a whole series of times that you experiment with something, you find something that's fun, that works, and then you just do it. I mean, it seems so simple, 
but it really right. seems to work marvelously. Yeah, it's just discovery is what it is. It's just constantly running the experiment. I think we talked about this before when you and I were doing a, in a pre-chat. I just am constantly running the experiment. I'm not afraid to fail. And then I learn from that experiment and I'm willing to look foolish. You know, Steve Jobs said that if you want to be successful in life, Jobs said, remain humble and remain a little foolish. Hmm. And it's the ability to look a little foolish that really lends itself to a world of discovery. Humble and foolish. The path. Yeah. The path to success. I love that. Yeah. So I wanted to ask Paul just for for the benefit of of this group. You know, this is an industrial focused, um, manufacturing focused group, and you got your start uh, way back with with Taylor guitars, which I was telling you I happen to play a Taylor guitar. I just think it's a fascinating beginning to the world of manufacturing. Can you just describe a bit of that 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 start for you? Uh, you know, I've never done this before, Jeremy. It's so funny that you would say that because here I am writing that song. So that's a Taylor guitar in the background. Nice. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. What a, what, what, what a segue for you to ask me about what that was like. And I'm actually playing a guitar that Bob Taylor got for me. Wow. I was in, I was in Antarctica two years ago and I was playing a, a GS Mini and I was writing a song about uh, Shackleton. And I sent a message to Bob. I said, I'm playing my son's guitar and I was wondering if there's any way I could get one. And he said, no problem, Paul. And he picked me out the most beautiful Koa GS Mini, which I'm playing right now. And I just wrote that song on. And when I got back from Antarctica, he got me that guitar. So it was beautiful. Bob's a good friend of mine. And the experience was basically when I was uh, in high school, I built my first guitar, struggled through it terribly, uh, had problems. We heard about Bob Taylor, that he'd started a little guitar making plan or actually bought American Dream. Uh, music, a little place that made guitars. And we went out to Bob to get advice from him, my shop teacher and myself. And we asked him, you know, what do we do? And Bob helped and explained the process. Bob was only like three or four years older than me. He's not that much older than me, hmm. maybe about five years. And uh, he was really generous with his time and really helped us. And then when I graduated from high school, I needed a job. And the first day I graduated from high school, I went out there and I showed Bob a music box that I, I or, excuse me, a, a jewelry box that I built. He knew about the guitar and he opened the doors to that jewelry box and he looked at it and it was very high level detail. It wasn't the typical jewelry box that somebody would make in high school. It was really intricate. And he said, if you can make this, you can make guitars. And he hired me hmm. and the rest is history. It's history. And now, now, how long did you work there? And then how did that lead you to FastCap? Can you give us just that progression? Yeah, that's a great story. So the two years I worked there, I always tell people I, I made $1.95 an hour working for Bob. And by the time I left him, uh, two years later, I was making about $2.05 an hour. But those, <laughs> were the those were the most important years of my life because I learned about life. I learned about innovation. I learned about craftsmanship. I learned about being bold and courageous from Bob. So for two years, I worked there and every job Bob gave me, I made it better. I was just naturally inclined to want to improve everything. I wasn't a lean thinker at that point because I always try to stop people and say, just because you improve everything, just because you're organized doesn't mean you're a lean thinker. It doesn't work that way. Lean hmm. thinking really deep concept that has huge ramifications. But I had tendencies towards lean thinking. And so he gave me every job he gave me, I just kept improving. And before long, Bob had 
graduated me to his job, which was adjusting and setting the neck angle, stringing up the guitar and playing and inspecting it and making sure it was perfect before it got to the customer. Okay. And before long, I was, you know, the head guy in charge and, and doing the work and, you know, organizing people and everything else. And that was just a powerful time for me. And then what happened after that was I went to work at uh, a general contracting business because I got paid a lot more money. I actually just told this story to somebody else. I, I literally went from making $2.05 an hour to making $25 an hour. And that was a long time ago. Hmm. So Bob set me up with such amazing skills that anywhere I went, I was paid the top, the top level. Everybody hmm. wanted to hire me and the doors were just, they just flew open. Thank you, Bob Taylor. That's all I can say. They just flew <laughs> everywhere I went. So that sense of innovation that I learned from Bob, because what happened at Taylor Guitars, if people don't know the story, it's a fascinating story, is Bob wanted the guitars to not just sound good, but he wanted them to play good. He wanted them to function really well. And the only way you could achieve that was by adjusting the neck angle on the guitar. And that required a very difficult process because the necks up to that point for the last, you know, thousand years, if you will, however old guitars are, were put on with something called a dovetail joint. And you, you would have to very carefully take that apart without chipping the guitar and, and grind it and shave it and do all this stuff. And Bob said, this is stupid. Why not just bolt the neck on? Well, you don't bolt necks on because these are beautiful wooden instruments and they're built by luthiers and they're craftsmen and we're specialized and we don't do things like that. And bolting is unorthodox and it's, it's contrarian to the way everyone else does it. And Bob said, boulder dash BS, we're going to bolt them on. And everyone kind of looked at him like he was crazy. Well, you know what? His guitars played better than everyone else's. That's why Crosby, Seals, Nash & Young. That's why Glenn Fry, the Eagle. That's why everybody started buying his guitars because they not only sounded great, they played great. And hmm. so that level of courage and boldness and willingness to take a chance and stick your neck out on the line and risk your reputation and risk your fortune and risk everything, I was witness to that. I saw it in living color. So when you stepped into Fast Cap, so what happened was, so I'm a general contractor. I'm pretty successful, not really successful, but moderately successful. And I see a problem with how to cover screw holes inside of cabinets because I'm a cabinet maker, a general contractor. And so I say, well, why don't we do it differently than everybody else has ever done it? So in the past, you put a screw over a cap with a little nib that presses into the head of the screw. And then a lot of times it falls out and you got to cock it on. And I said, this is stupid. Why don't we just make a peel and stick one? It's much easier. Nobody had ever done that before, but I had to take thick material and I had to take wood veneer and I had to laminate the back of it with adhesive. Then I had to die cut it out at high speeds. I had to figure out all these things that nobody had ever done before. You don't die cut high speed wood veneer. It just doesn't happen. Nobody had done hmm. it, but I figured out a way to do it. Bob what year was that? That was 1997. 1997. Okay. All right. So that's what happened. So I learned to be courageous. I learned to be innovative. I learned to be the contrarian. I learned to think outside the box. And I invented the fast cap and the rest is history. And now, now so I have the benefit of having read, you know, these books. I mean, the rest is history, but your lean, your focus on lean and, and this whole approach that you describe 
didn't start right then, right? It was sometime later. It did not. It did not. It certainly Bob Taylor's thinking supported it, but it did not start start right then. It started three years later when I hired some Japanese consultants to come into my company to help me manage inventory. And they came in and they were, you know, kind of like ex-Toyota people. They tr they were translators for Toyota consultants, if you will. And they came in and delivered a very harsh message to a guy who was very successful and making a lot of money and winning all the accolade, business of the year, business startup of the year, you know, all the accoutrements that were associated with successful and thoughtful business leaders I had. And they delivered the message that I was clueless and I didn't know how to manufacture. Hmm. How'd that feel? Well, it felt two ways. Nobody's ever asked me that before, Jeremy. That's really interesting. It felt two ways. It felt a little embarrassed, but it felt almost liberating because mm. I was struggling and I thought, God, could they finally, could I finally find the answer to make my company run successfully and eliminate all the consternation and difficulties and struggles that I was going through. So in one sense, it was very liberating. In another way, it was very humbling. Hmm. I've had experiences like that. That's, that's kind of why I ask because, yeah, it's uh, it's not what you want to hear, but it's probably what you need maybe, mm -hmm. oh, something absolutely. like that. So so fast-tracking, I mean, so two-second lean. I mean, I like this book so much that we are our, our entire leadership team is reading it now already, and I only read it a few weeks ago. And I've read the others, almost all of them. I mean, I boil it down to, you know, I've, I've read, I don't know, at least a dozen books, maybe almost two dozen about lean manufacturing. We're working with Toyota. We're in the manufacturing world. But you just make it so digestible. You notice waste and you fix what bugs you is one way I boil it all down. How do you boil it down? Like, what do you, if you want to explain your whole view on the world, how do you explain it? Feel the benefit. Feel the benefit. Feel the what? benefits. So what I mean is simply this, that what I've noticed about human behavior is that people do things when they feel a benefit. So mm. I'll take something off the cup. I've never said this before. You're stressed out. You grab a cigarette. You smoke a cigarette. It releases nicotine into your body. It settles you down. It's a sedative. You feel the benefit. So you do the smoking because you feel the benefit, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty simple. So in my lean world, I tell you to fix what bugs you. And I hate to associate with something as negative as smoking because it's just like the it's just like the bane of human existence along with excessive alcohol use and things like that. But in, in the lean world, I say fix what bugs you. And, you know, you have a, a cord. I'm looking at my cord right now for my computer and it's wrapped up with our fast wrap. Be, instead of being tangled in knots and thrown in my backpack or and so forth. So I felt the benefit because I took the time to put that special wrap on there. So every time I wrap my cord up, it, it's easier. I hmm. feel the benefit. So when you're constantly making these small improvements, your world is surrounded with the benefit of continuous improvement. Your world is surrounded by the benefit of eliminating waste, of digging through your backpack and having cords tangled up or digging through your backpack and trying to find the right cord. Hmm. Because I took the time to 
keep the cords associated with the correct chargers, computers, whatever it is I'm, I'm doing. So when you feel the benefit of something, it's very likely you will repeat it. Hmm. And then the habit just flows. Then the habit's natural. Hmm. Then the habit, it, it almost is not a habit it, that you do it as a reflex because you're seeking, you're seeking that reward, that stimulation. So I'm an addict. I tell people I'm an addict. I'm a drug addict and I'm addicted to the endorphins that are released in my body where everywhere I go in life, things flow and I don't struggle and I move through life in a very fluid way with not a lot of difficulty uh, challenging me all the time. So I'm so curious to ask, you know, so you, my, my company's whole mission is to transform American manufacturing. And I can just sort of picture as, as I read your books and I hear you describe it, if, if all the workers and the leaders in American manufacturing companies behave that way, including me, like I, I, I don't yet, uh, but if we did, it would certainly be a huge step towards transformation. And you do this in the context. I mean, you're not just talking about this. You're running a company. I've seen your videos. It's amazing what, what happens inside your walls. But you've also done it in Japan with, with Lexus, Toyota, and a whole bunch of other companies. Right. What, what, how do you like, how do we get there from here? Is it already happening? Or what, what are the successes and what are the failures of applying this in your, in your experience with, with manufacturing companies? Well, the successes are insane. I mean, literally tens of thousands of companies around the world are doing two second lean. I mean, this morning I was talking to a guy in Hungary. All my, my books are being translated in Hungarian and, it, you know, it's spreading through Hungary. It's spread through Kazakhstan. It's, spread, it's spreading through Saudi Arabia, <laughs> spreading through Africa. I mean, it's everywhere. And so the results have been astounding, but there's a big but it's only for a small group of people in the world. Hmm. It's only for 2% of the people in the world. There are very few people that will ever get what I'm talking about. Now, fortunately, the world's a big place. We got over 7 billion people. So there's lots of people that are getting it, but they're only 2% of the people in the world. The rest of the people don't want to put in the hard work. The rest of the people are not humble enough to admit they're wrong. The rest of the people are not willing to confront their weaknesses because a two-second lean mentality, a lean mentality is weakness-oriented, not strength-oriented. We blow. We hate our strengths. That's a joke. We don't even care about our strengths. We're concerned and obsessed with our weakness. Hmm. So I'm so intrigued. The... So the 2% number is really important, right? You know, if you want to really change things. And I know you talked about Toyota. You know, they're, they're one of the users, which is fascinating in itself, but it's mm -hmm. entirely understandable when you really understand the way that they think and focusing on the weakness. They're humble. What, what do you think the percentage is from your experience within Toyota, even just Toyota North America? Yeah, you know, I can't comment to that because I, well, I know Nigel, who is the one that introduced Toyota to Two Second Lean and had a lot of success there. I, I don't know all the, all the intricacies of how it was deployed and at what level, but I know that it's, it's been deployed successfully. I see. So I can't, I can't comment with great detail on that. I mean, if we get Nigel on the phone, he could tell us, but okay. he's not on the phone right now. 
But suffice to say, it's probably higher than 2% in a company that's totally yeah. focused on this, right? Yeah, in a, yeah, that would be for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because they're predisposed to it. They're already, the, the culture already says, hey, let's be weakness oriented. The culture already says our central focus is continuous improvement or Kaizen. I know Akio Toyota, who's the president of, of Toyota, said, hey, you know what? We're, gonna, we're done with reinventing ourselves. I'm just paraphrasing what he said. We're going to go back to the fundamentals of what made us great, and that is Kaizen. That is continuous improvement. The aggregation of marginal gains from everyone, the participation of everyone, as as Richie Oshingo says, a good friend of mine, son of Shigeo Shingo, he said, what is, I asked him, what is the Toyota production system, Richio? And he said, it is small improvements from everyone. And Akio Toyota, the president said, this is what we're going back to. Small improvements from everyone. I love that. And I mean, so I, I know this again from having read the book. Would you mind just for the listeners that, you know, I, I picked up the book Two Second Lean and, you know, from the title, it could mean a number of different things. But I, th- I mean, that's what it means. Can you just explain what Two Second Lean means to you? Yeah. So I'll tell a quick story, hopefully only 60 seconds on how the whole thing came about. So when I started implementing the Toyota production system, Lean Manufacturing, Kaizen, whatever you want to call it, I struggled like crazy with it because I couldn't get people to do it. And then as I would walk around in the morning, I did something called the morning improvement walk. If you type in Paul Akers morning improvement walk, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It's a great video, tens of thousands of views, very, very popular. I don't even know how many views it has anymore. So what I would do is in the morning, I would walk around to every department and work with everybody during our 3S time. That's when we were sweeping, sorting, and standardized. We were basically cleaning our facility for a half hour every morning. And I said, during that time when you're cleaning, if you find a problem, stop and make an improvement. So I would go around to all the different departments and say, hey, Martha, hey, Bill, hey, Mary, how are you doing? Anything you're struggling with? Anything I can help you with? Any improvement that I can help you make? And it was very successful. For two years, I did the morning improvement walk. Everybody knew where I was going to be on the Gemba working with my people. So I went to this one department called uh, the, the injection molding department. And Nick was running that department. He was the head guy. And Nick was kind of struggling with the whole continuous improvement, the three assing thing and everything. He was just kind of like, you know, kicking his heels and saying, I don't really get it and stuff like that. So I went up to Nick one morning and I said, Nick, uh, have you made an improvement? He goes, no. And I said, you mean everything's perfect in your department? He said, well, I don't know. It's pretty good. And I said, isn't there anything that's bugging you? And he said, well, maybe. I said, well, like what? What's bugging you, Nick? And he goes, well, when I put the injection mold in, I have to put a level on top of it. And then I have to reach my head inside the machine and look to see if the bubble was uh, bubble is level. And it's awkward. And I don't like doing it. It, it strains my neck, strains my back. I said, well, how can we fix that? And he looked at it and I said, I don't know. And I said, well, come on, Nick, how can we fix that? And he said, I don't know. Maybe we could put a mirror on the on the level. And I said, well, go get a mirror. This is running the experiment. We got a mirror. And I said, how are we going to attach that mirror? He goes, I don't know. I go, well, how can we attach that mirror, Nick? And he said, I don't know. I said, well, come on, how can we attach that mirror, Nick? He said, I don't know, hot glue it? I go, go get a hot glue gun. We got a hot glue gun. We glued the mirror onto the level at an angle. But it was a little flappy, a little you know, flimsy. I said, well, how can we fix that? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, Nick, how can we fix it? And he goes, 
I don't know, glue something on there. What could we glue on there, Nick? I don't know, a popsicle stick? I said, go get a popsicle stick. Got a popsicle stick, glued it on there. Now it had a gusset. It was at the 45 degree angle. When he put the level on there, it was magnetic. So it stuck on top of the, on the mold. So it didn't fall off because the mirror was hanging out there a little heavy. And all of a sudden he could see the vial without even reaching inside the machine. He could just set it on there and see whether that was level, adjust the mold, tighten the bolts up, and it was done. And he goes, wow, that's incredible. And mm -hmm. I looked at Nick and I said, that's all I want you to do every day. I want you to make one small improvement that saves you just a couple seconds. Just the seconds of reaching in and looking at the vial and reaching out. That's all I want you to do. He goes, I could do that. That's how, mm -hmm. that's what it means. And that's how it started. And that's how it all started for you. And then you just noticed it and you rolled it out. That's right. I just rolled it. I just noticed. I said, it's two second lane. Just make me a freaking two second improvement. That's all I want. Yeah, I love it. Because I, I I, mean, I personally, I, I love solving problems and I've been wired for problem solving my whole life, but I'm not a process structure person. That doesn't come naturally to me. So having something that's just boiled down to the simplest possible structure is what so resonates with me. That's what I just love that about the approach. Right. So pretty simple. And it works for me. And, you know, I always tell people I'm a carpenter and a DNC student. Uh, everything was tough for me. So I like the simplicity. I like I read a book called Simpleton in college. You ever read that book? It's an incredible book. Mm -hmm. You ever want to read it? Simpleton. Book, you read it? Yeah, it's, a, it's part of German literature. My my professor in I went to school in Germany. My professor in Germany was a, a professor of German literature. And it's one of the books we had to read. It's a fascinating book about this guy that, you know, he was just had a simpleton mind. He had a very simple mind about the way he thought about everything. It's, it's an incredible book. I'll check that anyway. out. Well, so I'm curious to ask, um, you know, again, we're, we're just, we're up to our ears in, in American manufacturing. And I, you know, whether it's 2% or 1% or 5% of people who are really looking to make incremental improvements all day, every day, it's not a huge percentage, right? Safe, safe to say. Very what do you tiny. do? Yeah, so but say you have a you you must have this happen all the time. You have the leader of some company who says, I mean, just like frankly, I want to do, and you say, I, I understand this, and I think it's implementable. I want to make my company better. We're going to adopt two second lean, and then they start doing it. How, how what happens? Like, what if do you, do you need the people to change their entire outlook on life, or do you have to? Do the people just have to? change what they're doing? Like what, what happens that leads to wide scale success? Mm, God, you ask such great questions. Well, the answer is the leader jumps off the cliff. The leader <laughs> recognizes that this is the Holy grail. The leader recognizes that this is not the flavor of the month. The leader recognizes that this is just not an augmentation to their business plan. But the leader recognizes this is it. This is the center, central focus. This is the nucleus. This is the core philosophy, the cornerstone, the underpinning. This is it about the way their company will be run, organized, and implemented from here mm -hmm. on out. When that happens, when the leader gets it, everything changes. But when the leader approaches it like, this is cool, let's try this and see what happens. Hey, uh, engineering department, I want you to start doing this two-second lean thing. Or engineering department, I want you to start doing Kaizans. And meanwhile, the leaders over there on the phone, talking, making the big deals, on the phone, charting the vision of the company, 
on the phone, having nice luncheons with buddies, that's when it fails. But hmm. when the leader says, oh my gosh, this is transformative and runs out of their office, gets onto the Gemba, works side by side with the people, everything changes. And, and you've probably seen some of both of those, right? Or probably a lot of both of those. I see it all the time and I, I can spot it a mile away. I, I know the words that the leader speaks to know whether or not they're going to be successful or not. I can hear it. It's just so, it's so easy. It's, it's like, I look, I go, no, oh, they're going to win. No, they're going to lose. They're going to win. They're wow. going to lose. I, I can sort them out in five seconds. What's the biggest, oh, actually, I, I have to ask, what is it? I'm just curious. I'm thinking now myself, what am I saying? What, what is, can you give us just one? What do they either say or not say that allows you to be able to tell? Ego. First thing is, oh, I mm. knew that. We're already, we're already doing that. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're doing that. Yeah, yeah, we're doing that. Instead of what they should be saying. Oh, can you edit this if I say if I swear? We, we can't edit it, but we might not. Yeah, okay, so. <laughs> oh, shit. How could I be so fucking stupid? How did I miss this stuff? Yeah, then you can tell you've okay. got somebody. Yeah, then you, then you know you got somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so curious. This is the next thing I was going to ask you is um, like the size of the company, uh, the, the bigger and bigger the company gets, the, the larger the team gets and the more complex the organization is, but also the, the probably the ego of the leader tends to probably get larger. Is it, um, have you, have you seen two second lean be adopted successfully like a new by really big organizations or does oh, it do yeah. smaller ones oh, yeah. tend to be better? No, no, yeah. no. Well, the, 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 certainly the smaller ones have a greater propensity because they're not uh, bogged down by the bureaucracy and, and all the establishment and all the, all the corporate BS, right? And there's no question. Mm -hmm. The small companies adopt it much easier, but no, we have fabulous companies that have adopted that are big FB McCann in Ireland, you know, like 2000 employees, the largest prefab con concrete, uh, manufacturer in the UK. I mean, they're unbelievable. They're just like the whole place is on fire. It's unbelievable. But the six brothers that run it are pretty young, pretty agile. They learned about it. They said, this is it. And they just, Oh, they went to Japan with me. I mean, they, they just took it. They jumped off the cliff. Right. Okay. And then the, I can tell you the Kazakhstan, uh, the BI group in Kazakhstan, 7,000 employees, you know, a two, $3 billion company. Uh, the Iden, the president who started the company, he, he, that's exactly the words he said to me. He didn't swear, but I spoke at a conference in Kazakhstan about four or five years ago. And after I spoke for eight hours to their top executive, he stood up and he goes, I can't believe I missed this. This is a highly educated guy, Harvard, everything. And he just stood up. And the first thing he said after I got off the stage was, I can't believe I missed this. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's, you want to hit your head with a, with a two by four. It's just, it's exactly. <laughs> so, so I want to ask you something. You, we, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, you said something that I thought was really intriguing again. So you're talking about, you know, Kazakhstan, uh, but here we are sitting, sitting in America and, and, and really that's our primary focus. And we were talking about America has this like dichotomy, interesting, you know, ironies or dichotomies. It's an incredibly innovative place, but it's also a very wasteful country in a lot of ways. Sure. Absolutely. But you used the phrase, you said, you said America is a lean country. Oh and my gosh. The most can, can you talk country. about that a little more? 
Absolutely. And I don't talk about this very much, actually. So I'm really glad you brought this up. I, I can't even remember the last time I ever said this to someone, maybe four or five years ago. So when you really think about what America is all about, it's people who wanted to be able to pursue their own interests, what was best for them. So the whole model is based on the idea that the person on the shop floor, the person doing the work really knows what's best. And that a centralized government or a centralized management system is really disconnecting the work from where it needs to be. It, 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 it is the antithesis of efficiency. So mm -hmm. America was born, the concept of America was individual rights. All men were created equal, endowed by the creators with inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To put the control in the individual. So, so lean puts the control in the individual. So the whole essence of the way America was founded was putting the control in the individual so that they could improve their life. Why did my grandfather in 1913, this is what I wrote the song about just now. Why did my grandfather in 1913 come to America? Why did he leave the island of Crete? Well, let me tell you why. Because Crete sucked. Because the <laughs> government in Greece sucked. And he had a better opportunity to improve his life in America. And he believed that. And he said it. And when you asked him if he ever wanted to go back, hell no. Did he ever go back? Hell no. Because America was the platform, the environment in which he could improve his life. And that's why immigrants have come from around the world and still do. That's why they cross deserts. That's why they climb walls. Because America is the platform. It is the lean platform best where people can improve their life. I love that. My, yeah. I mean, my grandfather came 1922 from Sweden. Same, same thing, same story. I mean, it is, it's the path of America. Is it, um, it's getting better though. I mean, you know, I think you would, you say that and a lot of people, is it false defeatism or is it, is it both? Like, are we also getting sort of sloppy and, and um, I don't know, lazy at the same time? Well, well that's one thing you got to realize as a lean thinker, there's always stuff to work on, right? You never, you never <laughs> arrive, you never arrive. So America hasn't arrived. We just need to keep doing what we've always done. Keep pursuing improvement, keep pursuing respect for individual rights decentralizing government, putting the power back in the hands of the people. These are the pursuits that we need to do to remain a great country. So yes, we have tons of problems. We have problems everywhere you turn. But if we have the central core philosophy correct, and we don't adopt this ridiculous notion of centralized government, socialism, and all this other bullshit that's going on these days, we can retain greatness and continuous improvement can continue to flourish in this amazing country. Yeah. I love that. So I wanted to ask you one, one other thing. And I, um, geez, we're, we're almost getting up against our time already. I feel like we just started talking. Um, I mentioned I'm reading lean life. And I think when we talked, you had suggested it, it would be a, an interesting one. You, you talk about your epiphany, actually two epiphanies, right? The, the second one, can, can you just describe for me exactly what your epiphany was the second time? 
Uh, tell, you have to remind me which epiphany you're talking about, because I've had so many of them. But I know the epiphany when I was driving down the road and God said, you know, I don't make junk. Is that the one you're talking about? Or which that one was the first about? one. That was the first right? one. It was later. I think it was when you really committed yourself to writing the books and, and um, becoming a teacher of lean. Does that not ring a bell? Right. Keep going. Keep going. No, no, I'm still not ringing a bell. You're going to have to help me here. I'm 60 years old, but I have short term memory. <laughs> I honestly don't think I. So I was I, I was I was listening to it while I was riding my bicycle and I okay. was um, the, the story the didn't didn't fully galvanize for me. Okay. Yeah. Well, so here, here's the here's the second epiphany that I think you're talking about. about uh, we become a substitute society. Is that the one you're talking about? I OK. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. Substitute right. society. Okay. Yeah, so basically what I what I realized is I looked around and I'm driving, I'm walking down the plane. I'm walking down this aluminum tube, getting on the plane and everyone's on their phone. I get up to go to the bathroom and everyone's on their phone. And when I look at it, everyone is playing a game for the most part. There are very few people that are doing something constructive. And I thought to myself, we have become a substitute society. We have substituted real sports activity for, for thumbing through our phone and playing some ridiculous game or whatever it is. We, we've substituted a real, real interpersonal relationships with being on Facebook. We go into the line at Costco. We look over at everybody's line. Look, go to the grocery store. Next time you go to the grocery store, just look at what everyone's putting on the belt or what's in their cart. Boxes full of substitute foods, not real foods. You go to my, when you watch me check out of the grocery store, it's all fruits and vegetables. It's beautiful. It's all things with no boxes. I don't buy boxes. Everything's fresh. So these people have substituted the real thing, whether it be substituting a real interpersonal relationship and having it on Facebook or some chat site or whatever it is, whether it be the food you're eating, whether it be the games you're playing on your you know, I'm a triathlete. I'm a two-time Ironman. You don't become a two-time Ironman by playing games on your phone. You know right. what I mean? You don't become a totally, songwriter. Yeah. You don't become a songwriter by just listening to music. You make music. Yes. You follow yeah, that's exactly what I was after is that, yeah, the substitute society. Because I think it started with your one of your children um, sparked it by uh, asking you to put your phones down when you went to Starbucks or something yeah, like that. My, and then my Oh yeah, and yeah. I uh, boy, boy, I'm not perfect at all this stuff because I can be on my phone a lot. My my daughter always just takes the phone from me and says, "Okay, we're having dinner now. Get off your freaking phone." I I'm I'm a sinner as much as anybody else, and I admit it. But I'm very conscious of it at a high level, so I'm very careful that I'm in the presence of other people that I'm present. Yeah, yeah, and the the way to phrase it is to be a to be real to do real things, yeah. to do real things with real people, not to yeah, substitute exactly. it with technology. So this is perfect. I, I, I do need to start um, wrapping this up, but this is a perfect segue for, for what I want to, to do that with because it's, you know, my whole focus in the world is taking this type of approach and then helping the, the customers that we serve do it better, help them solve problems better, help them do two-second lean, help them do lean in general. And, right. um, yeah, as you, as you know, both, you know, in the grocery store, but also in most manufacturing plants, they're dirty, they're sloppy, there's waste everywhere. Things are breaking down unnecessarily. What, um, what, like we know what we want. We want everything to be perfect. And we know we have the people that we have, and we know we have the, the processes and the leaders that we have. I would like to hear from you, from everything that you've done and, and learned, what is the biggest problem? Like what stands between, and just for the scope of American manufacturing, 
what what is the biggest problem that stands between where we are and where we want to be? Amazing leadership and amazing leadership. Wait, wait, wait. You, this is the this is the caveat, and even better followers. Mm. So we need great leadership. We need people that are courageous willing to stand up and be counted and say things that are contrarian to what everybody else is saying. We need those great leaders, but Bob Taylor taught me this. But Paul, the problem is not great leadership because leadership is out there. We have terrible followers. Hmm. All the information is out there, but we don't know how to follow. You can't be a great leader until you're a great follower. Yeah, I, I buy it. It reminds me. There's a there's a YouTube video I've seen where they they make the. I think it's actually embedded in a TED talk where they're talking about the important the importance of the first follower is actually greater than that of the leader mm-hmm. because a, a leader without a first follower is just basically a lone weirdo or whatever they call it. Which is I can relate to that because I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I love that. What about the second? One more thing. One more. I just want to say one more thing. We don't need to read more books, although I'm a big advocate of reading because I read a book a week. It's not a lack of information. That's the problem. Yeah. Me, I just have to ask one little follow on to that because you've seen this, surely. The leader, you know, so you, you need great leaders and even better followers, but surely the leaders can do something to create the right ecosystem for followers. And I mean, something about what Toyota does. They need to be great followers. That's the whole point. Exactly. They need to be great followers. The leader is someone that's on the Gemba, shoulder to shoulder. So I heard John Shook talk one time at the AME conference. I spoke at the AMQ conference in Boston, I don't know, three or four years ago. Huge crowd, a couple thousand people. And I spoke and then John Shook spoke and he talked about what Toyota was doing. And really, globally, what is it that Toyota has done? They got their leaders down on the shop floor and they worked shoulder to shoulder. They said, here's the problem. Now let's go together and solve the problem. So they 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 set the, the, the epitome example of being a great follower of the principles and not someone that talked about them theoretically. Yes, I understand. So in doing that, you're the follower, you're the leader, but you're also the follower. And then it actually is followable. And you, yeah. Right. So in Banish Sloppiness, I have a whole chapter on this concept and I learned it in Japan. I've learned so much in Japan, I can't even tell you. And that is that Japanese children learn by watching their children's but Japanese children learn by watching their father's back. So people learn by what others do. So, so if you want to create a culture of great followers, you have to be a great follower yourself. You have to set the example. You cannot talk about it theoretically. Yeah, I love that. So take me forward. I, I mean, you're just such, you, you have such enthusiasm and energy and passion about this, about two second lean and the entire lean approach and your business mm-hmm. and, and a lot of optimism, you know, especially about just America being the way, you know, the way you described it. Right. What, what do you think, you know, take me out 
to the future, you know, whatever the future is to you, 10 years or 20 years, whatever. Do you, do you think things are getting better? And do you think things can, should, and will get better? Like what's your, what's your vision for 10 years from now or, or how long the future is? Well, first of all, I am an optimist. So that's one, but I'm also an an historian. So I have a rich background in knowing history. And if you were to look at mankind, civilization, a thousand years, would you say we're better off today than we were a thousand years? I mean, you'd be out of your mind to say we weren't. I mean, we were sure, doing much the black, better, yeah. black, black, you know, and, and even a hundred years ago, do we have a longer lifespan than a hundred years ago? Is there more opportunity for a wider swath of people today than there was a hundred years ago? I mean, not a little bit. Just think of Eastern Europe. Think about the freedom in Poland and Bulgaria and Slovenia and Yugoslavia and Croatia. I mean, come on, Albania. You know what I'm saying? The, the yeah. freedom in Russia, the Soviet Union is as screwed up as it could be, or excuse me, as Russia is screwed up as it could be. There's still, I've been to Russia many times. There's a lot more freedom there. I've been to Kazakhstan. There's, a, there's tremendous freedom there comparatively than just 20 or 30 years ago, right? So the world is vastly better. It's indisputable. Yes. yes. So I'm an optimist. And if you were to say, you know, people say we're going to hell in a handbasket. Certainly there are lots of problems. It's undeniable. But are we better today than we were 20 or 30 years ago? Hell yes. I mean, just look what's going on in Southeast Asia with Vietnam and and, and North Korea, for that matter. Even Kim Jong-il is may, maybe having a slight epiphany about the way he should do business. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are some good things happening, lots of bad things. Look at the Abraham Agreement that just happened in, in between uh, Bahrain and, and, uh, and the United Arab Emirates. I mean, that's unprecedented. There are yes. lots of good things that are going on. And yes, I think things are better, and I think things will continue to get better. But you never know. <laughs> but it takes away it won't happen automatically and that's why i just love i love it i agree i 100 percent agree with all that in fact there's a book um i don't know if you know the book factfulness by hans rosling no i haven't it, heard that one it has some just some unbelievable facts um supporting you know what you just said it's just it's uh it's staggering it I mean, really is i i just love it years ago in most countries a man could be walking down the road and another man could kill him indiscriminately and have no compunction whatsoever and just move on. Right. That happens a lot less today than it did a hundred years ago. Right. And half the children didn't live past five, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I love it. And I, um, I just, I love it. And I also just, I really think that what you're doing is making a path that more people can participate in that, in making things better. I just, that's what I love about what you're doing so much. That's my goal as well as it's your goal. That's why we're a kindred spirits in that way. My goal is just to make the world a better place. That's all I want to do. It's, it gives me joy knowing that people's lives are improving. And that's all I try to do. I love it. Paul, I have one last question for you. I, I love to ask this question. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really uh, intrigued how you'll answer it. Um, the question is this. Can you tell me something that that you know to be true, a truth, but that most people would disagree with you about? Wow.
Well, I would say emphatically that there is greatness in every human being, every, every, every human being. There is literally greatness in every human being. And I think most people would say, hey, you know, some people are more gifted. Some people have more intelligence. Some people just got, they got, they got the mother load. And well, I would say that it, it looks on the outward or external, externally that a lot of people did get the mother load, that some of us got more gifts than others externally. But a person who's really willing to dig down and find that greatness in every human being is really going to find the greatest treasure in life. Because I have found the very people that are pushed aside, obviously, oftentimes in society and in life, have the richest truths to uncover and discover. Wow. That's just a beautiful statement. I love that, you know, especially, you know, I, I love contradictions, but, you know, the you contradict that with maybe 2% you said of people are naturally inclined to lean thinking and yet 100% of people are capable of it. It's both challenging, but unbelievably yeah. optimistic at the same time. And that's just, I, I love that. Right. And the only thing that keeps those 98% from getting it, there's only one thing that stops them. It's ego. Hmm. You take the ego out of everything and everybody will get this but everybody's a little defensive. So many people are defensive, trying to protect their turf, trying to cover their ass, whatever it is. Don't want to take a chance of exposing their weaknesses. Don't want to take a chance of being a little foolish, as Steve Jobs says. You know, they, they want to protect themselves. They become very careful about who they expose themselves to. And the minute they overcome that, then everything changes. And that was the first epiphany that I had. And when I realized God spoke to me in a non-audible voice, but with crystal clarity, he said, Paul, I made you with a purpose. I don't make junk. I made you to do something great. And the minute I discovered that about myself, that God made me with a purpose, just like God made every human being with a purpose to do something great, everything changed. Then all of a sudden, I wasn't afraid of being foolish. I wasn't afraid of taking a risk. Yeah, I love it. It's inspiring. It's beautiful. No pride, no problem. That's the way I've, I've heard a wise person say it that way. It, it I love that. I, that is just truly inspiring, Paul. This has been, this has been just a just a wonderful conversation. It's it's just a treasure to um, to have the chance to talk with you and to capture some of these perspectives from your experience and your personal practice and just these books. I'll recommend them to everyone. It's just it is just it's life changing stuff, and I just absolutely love it. Well, I might say, Jeremy, it's because you ask great questions. <laughs> you did a great job interviewing. I was just along for the ride. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, it's new to me, but that's learning, right? It's all uh, making it up as you go along. And I, yeah, I just it's a it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Is there anything else you'd like to share in closing, or anything um, anything on your mind before we wrap up? Life's an adventure. Embrace every second of it. I love that. Embrace every second. I love that, Paul. Uh, thank you very much. This, this is uh, Jeremy Frank again with Paul Akers today on the Industrial Transformation Podcast. And we'll catch you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com. And check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com. Thank you.